Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I had the opportunity to speak with David Chow, a CIO in the health sector. We spoke about his opinions on what he noticed in the health industry. Please note, this podcast was recorded well before COVID-19. David discusses his major concerns in the health space and what he's doing to solve some of those issues. If you're keen on learning more about David's experience and his approach, then this is the episode for you. Please keep on listening. Okay, so David, I know we've tried to connect a fair few times and I think the reason for that is that you've been traveling the world, presenting at different conferences. So I'm really keen to get your your thoughts on the industry. And I know that you obviously specialize in healthcare and I've read a lot of stuff that's on your blog. So I'm definitely keen to jump into what goes inside of your mind. But before we get to that stage, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you please walk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? Yeah, definitely. So I would say I have been extremely privileged in my career to work in the healthcare provider vertical. So primarily in the hospital and health system space. I got lucky where I graduated from college and my first job was in the hospital. Uh, graduated with, with a computer science degree, had no idea how anything related to coding, but just walked into the hospital setting and was able to understand the industry inside out. And I would say the differentiator is really understanding how a hospital operates and then understanding how the technology landscape fits into the operation. So I would say that is probably my differentiator where I had the luxury and the privilege of working in and roaming the various departments in the hospital early on and understanding how the the ins and outs, the financials, the operational side of, uh, of the business. And then I was able to navigate to different organizations within the healthcare space, primarily in North America, working for for-profit systems, non-profit systems, academic medical centers, um, pediatric specialty hospitals, and I will currently working internationally um, in Asia and Australia as well, and Singapore helping organizations set up their private hospital ventures. So it's a fair assumption to say that you spent most of your career working in hospitals and healthcare. So you definitely are the specialist when it comes to this area. Uh, I would say so, but still lots to learn. But I do have a good feel in terms of the landscape and really understanding the the various technologies involved. But most importantly, the, just the global view of how healthcare works around the world. Mm, absolutely. Let's paint the landscape of what is happening in the healthcare space at the moment and what are some of the trends that you're seeing. And I think this is important because healthcare is one of those industries that obviously if they get taxed, something goes wrong, people's lives could potentially be at risk. And this is uh, the same type of way I look at it in terms of critical infrastructure as well. When you're dealing with financial services, yes, people lose money and stuff like that, but people's lives actually aren't at risk. So I'm really keen, just from a personal point of view, to really understand what you're sort of seeing in the market, not only in the US, but on a global scale as well. Yeah, the big um, trend has been everyone's trying to drive down costs globally, right? If you think about where US stands, um, it's been ranked in terms of the highest cost for healthcare services, but not necessarily the, the highest quality. And then when you look around the world, countries like Australia, Canada, where everyone's access to healthcare, it's a lot more affordable, but at the same time, someone's paying for it somewhere. So there's a trend right now around the world to provide the highest quality care at the lowest price. And then everyone's trying next to figure out how can they create a personalized experience in healthcare, uh, similar to retail model. 
And then third, when I uh, hone in on purely the technology aspect, everyone's trying to figure out the next technology trend that's going to help drive better outcomes at the lowest price. So all those point towards how can we deliver healthcare that's most affordable with the highest quality. And how do you think that's going so far? Because I feel like they're on different ends of the spectrum. So you're trying to deliver high quality healthcare, but at a low price. How's that sort of working out? I would say it's we're still struggling in North America. There are lots of talks about providing value-based care. I'm sure that's a buzzword that you hear all the time, which is how can, instead of getting paid for the number of tests that you provide or the number of times you see a doctor, you want to get paid based upon the quality of care that you receive and that has to get measured somehow. We're still pretty far away from that around the world. Um, I would say the, the big focus right now around the world is how do you provide just simple things like access to care? For example, in Australia, how easy is it for you to see a doctor uh, versus the U.S.? And then I'll look at the landscape in Asia. How easy is it for someone to see a doctor in Shanghai or Beijing? So that's, I would say, having getting access to care should be a, bit, a huge focus. And then secondly, followed by how can you get access to the best care at the lowest price? But we're still pretty far away from achieving those goals around the world. Certain countries either have access to care a lot easier. For example, North America and the U.S., it's a lot easier to get access to care, but at the same time, we're paying a lot for care. And then when I look at the other countries where you're not able to get access to care for care as easily without a referral, but at the same time, your cost is a lot lower. So those are the spectrums. I don't have the right answer, but that's a, that's a global problem that people are facing in terms of uh, seeking care. And so walk me through the difference. So in Australia, obviously this is a global podcast, so people who are Australian would know that if you're looking to go to a doctor, for example, there are there are bulk bill doctors, so you don't have to pay anything. Uh, Medicare absorbs those costs if you're an Australian uh, citizen or you're a permanent resident here. There are also doctors that you can go to that there is like a fee attached to it. It's not too absorbent from, from memory. But I know that in the US, that does not apply at all. And so how do you think that's sort of affecting the economy? Because if you've got to go to see a doctor at least once a month, that, that can add up to be quite significant costs. So what's your opinion on that? Well, that's that's exactly it, right? If you're, if you're someone that needs to see the doctor very frequently, you're, you're costing the system a lot of money. And the people that are making the most money during that type of encounter are the insurance companies and followed by the physicians and maybe even the hospitals. So the, the key is how do you keep someone healthier? without having to always see a doctor. And that's the that's the game. But it's a very hard game right now to play because you're still getting paid based on volume. So as, as people move towards this so-called population health management, it's really about promoting wellness. It's really about keeping patients out of the hospital. It's, it's a very tough ask for a CEO to go all in on just because the reimbursement models are not set up for. So prime example, if you start keeping patients out of your hospital and promoting wellness, and uh, keeping them healthier, which is the right thing to do, you're going to lose money from a business mm. perspective. So how does a CEO make that call when, they're, when their tenure is probably three to five years or five to eight years, right? And to, in order to have that, those type of strategy, you, you may have to lose money for three years. So how do you go to the board and say, well, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm moving towards this population health management. We're moving towards value-based care. It is where the future is moving towards. But at the same time, the next three years, our margins are not going to be there. So it's a very tough ask just because the financial model is not aligned with the incentives at this point, even though we know that's where the market is going to be moving towards. And it's a journey. I just don't know when that would happen in terms of the the tipping point where people can actually focus on preventive care versus uh, the current model of fee-for-service.
So how are these CEOs making that call? So, I mean, I understand what you're saying that they have to make money, but then at the same time, the whole reason why they're there is to make people healthy. And that's what they're trying to do to obviously keep people outside of their doors. But then as a result of keeping people outside of their doors, they're losing money on it. So how are they going about making those calls so that it doesn't feel that they're coming across like disingenuous? Yeah. So they're, they're definitely doing it in phases. They may look at a, a specialty area of focus and start with a specific uh, area, a specialty area. So that's been the trend, but you're not going all in as an organization. And it's very hard when you're not changing the entire operation to focus on that. If you're just focusing on a specialty, you're still operating the same way. So I would say that's the challenges where we know we have to change the entire way of how we operate. Um, we have to focus a lot more on virtual care, telemedicine, and we know that's the future. But at the same time, if the reimbursement is only 30 to $40 for every telemedicine visit, we know that's not enough to even capture the cost of that virtual care visit. So it's a very tough model as we speak. So executives are looking at it from a specialty perspective and they're trying to tackle a specialty by specialty or specifically a specific chronic illness uh, that they're targeting, but they're not going all in as an organization yet. So is it a fair assumption, fair assumption to say that technology is helping with in terms of the reduction in people going to see doctors and hospital like that? Is that sort of the intent for when you talked about before around uh, value-based care? That people are hoping that is a, an enabler to help with that piece. But here's the reality. Most people, when they're really sick, they have to see a physical person. Uh, technology can provide great access they can provide a great tool for some, something as simple as a code or a flu where you just need to get a doctor's prescribed medication where it's nothing uh, too serious. I think that can definitely make a major play. But um, I would say at the, at the end of the day, healthcare is still a human uh, interaction industry. You still need to have a human interaction. Just because a physician may need to really take a closer look at your skin complexion, have a touch of your skin just to see how things feel. Um, that interaction is still very important. I know that there are these like robotic type nurses and people have said, well, it means if they're administering certain antibiotics for someone, it means that there's probably a lot less error involved. But from, just from your perspective, I mean, I love technology and how it enables our economy, but do you think that's a bit weird and a bit off-putting if, if you're sitting there really, really sick and you have this robot like that's, I guess, injecting uh, some type of medication versus a human that's actually has an emotional connection. Do you think that, like, I, I don't know, something about that just feels off-putting to me? And I'm keen to get your thoughts on that. And if that is that how most other people feel, or is that just going to be the reality of what our world eventually evolves into? I would say society has to adapt to that type of interaction behavior. It will take time. Um, but I'll give you another example of how something in radiology where they're using artificial intelligence and robots to do reading of films that have actually been able to do a lot better than, a, than an actual human radiologist. So there are times when the robots and machines can actually be augmenting the, the mm -hmm. skill set of a clinician. But um, to be able to say, let's have a robot draw blood, let's have a robot to do a lot of things that historically has been done by a human, that will take some time to adapt. In addition, when I think about just the medical education industry in general, that has to be part of the education. So when um, physicians and nurses, when they go to medical school, 
they really have to teach them how to use technology as well. It can't just be you enter the workforce and they are getting thrown into a bunch of technology. It has to be something that's embedded within their education. So that has, I don't think that has been a big area of focus yet, but it definitely has to be as we move towards an area where technology is really a tool set. It's going to be as um, prevalent and as common as Microsoft Office in the mm-hmm. clinician world. So we have to treat it as that. So do you think uh, colleges and universities around the world will have to start embedding this type of new behavior around, okay, cool, you want to be a nurse, but you now need to understand what it's like to work alongside of a a robot as well. I mean, has that been implemented in courses? Do you know? It has not. Okay. Um, It has has not been implemented. It has not been a big factor of learning, but it definitely Mm -hmm. has to be because that's your change in mentality of how a clinician thinks and how they're being educated. And that transcends to how they're practicing medicine throughout their lives. But if you're ingraining them with the technology tool set, you're helping them um, be more efficient and utilize technology to be a, an enabler and a potential competitive advantage, then that's something that they, they could definitely get accustomed to. One of the areas that we're, we hear a lot about right now is physician burnout. Um, mm-hmm. one, and one of the reasons for that is the move from paper to digital. Uh, now, doctors are spending so much time on a computer documenting, putting in the necessary information electronically that is causing them burnout. Um, and a lot of the response has been, we never we didn't, never went to medical school to be a data entry person. Well, mm-hmm. what if you went to medical school and that was part of the curriculum where you were able to be a lot more efficient, you knew how to use these tool sets a lot better, maybe that wouldn't be a big issue for physician burnout. But because that was never part of the curriculum. It was never been ingrained. Now they're having to retool with a new skill set, and it's causing mm-hmm. them to work a lot harder than before. Now that's a really interesting point, actually, because I was I was definitely keen to ask you more around like how do you think clinicians are responding to this? Because like you said, like okay, I want to be a doctor 20 years ago. Technology wasn't as, I guess, reliant as it is today. And now people are kind of feeling like, oh, I I went to medicine school to be a doctor. And now I feel like you said, I'm becoming a, like an engineer because I've got to sit there and do all this, this stuff with all of this, like, you know, AI and I'm doing all of this uh, data entry and stuff like that. So do you think that, do you think that's sort of deterring people? Because I mean, we as technologists like technology, so it makes sense for someone like us. But when you're practicing medicine, now that paradigm shifting, do you think that people are just feel a bit turned off by the whole process now because they feel that they are becoming some, I don't know, data entry specialist? I think so. I, I hear a lot from healthcare uh, clinicians where, you know, when you look at just for example, the amount of time they're spending per day, if you just calculate the hourly rate, it's not as high as what you would think a physician mm-hmm. makes in terms of the salary. And that has part of it has to do with the amount of time they're spending on technology. But I'll give you the other example where you have someone who really embraces it. They're actually spending a lot less time than someone who does not embrace it and versus and or someone who has spent the time learning about it and learning the tool sets. They don't feel the burnout. So um you know, I would say it's one of these catch 22 to where you need to really invest the time to learn the systems and mm-hmm. learn how to be a lot more efficient to help you do your job a lot better. Because if not, it, it's really painful. And at the end of the day, you really you just become a high pay laborer that's um, spending a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let, let's move on to some of your concerns, because I know, as I mentioned at the start of this interview, that you do do a lot of public speaking and presenting in this area. So can you talk me through some of your major concerns in this space? 
The biggest concern right now is healthcare IT security. I would say that's aligned with some of the things you guys have been talking mm-hmm. about as well. But healthcare IT security is very scary right now, right? The cost of a medical record on the black market is worth five to 10 times more than a credit card. Um, that's very concerning. Number two is security, IT security has never been a emphasis in any hospital setting. And now you, you're having, you're telling these organizations to catch up and get to the standards when they have foundational problems. So that's a big challenge right now for all executives, uh, CEOs, CIOs, you know, every C-suite in a, in a hospital setting there, if you were to ask them in the board, what's the top three concern, I, I would guarantee you healthcare IT security is up there. And so what do you think people are sort of doing about it? So obviously it's a concern, but are they doing any sort of purposeful action to mitigate those concerns? They're trying to. People are trying to, but they're not making the level of investment that's required. If I were to look at almost every hospital system in the U.S., they have a foundational infrastructure problem where they probably have underinvested in their infrastructure, whether it's the network, the wireless thing, just a basic foundational net infrastructure and now, without those infrastructure um, being kept up to standards or even kept up to date, you, you add on security, sort of, you need to make a huge investment across the board on the foundation level just to be able to be secure as an organization. So here's a tough question. Would you rather invest in healthcare IT security or would you rather invest in a new MRI machine that's going to help you attract a few million dollars worth of patients? That's a very tough, that's, a, that's the problem that a lot of organizations are facing and they're trying to buy time by not going all in and investing in the infrastructure that's required to catch up. They're trying to do it in uh, phases. And I, I definitely, I think that's a mistake, but that's a tough decision to ask a CEO to make. So can you define a little bit more about why you think it's a mistake just from your perspective? Because I mean, I've got my opinion, but I'm definitely keen to hear yours. Yeah. So let's, let's look at, at something as simple as my previous example of the network not being kept up to par. So let's just say you take three years to upgrade your network infrastructure. By the time you're done with that network infrastructure upgrade, you're due for another refresh. Now, if you took the other route of, okay, let's try to get it done. We're going to throw the resources and the money that's required to get it done within a year or maybe even a year and a half. Now you have some time where you have the updated infrastructure. You don't have to make the refresh right away you probably have two to three years worth of time before you have to make another major investment. Whereas if you're always doing this in phases, you're constantly doing a refresh or upgrade. You would never get caught up. And that's the mistake that I see lots of organizations making where uh, the CIO, the CISOs, or the head of technology, they're not able to get the appropriate amount of funding, whether it's budget or people, to get the foundation, like the infrastructure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fixed in an appropriate amount of time. No, of course. And that was sort of what I was thinking then as well. Like you've got to have a strong foundation before you start adding on other things because it makes it more difficult then to sort of go back and retrofit um, fixing your network then if, you, if you're if you focusing on continuously moving forward like with new MRI machines and like you said with the radiology type of uh, AI-based machines. And I think that it's – I agree with you, but again, like we're not sitting in a CEO position to have their perspective because their perspective is we want to make people healthy. And Exactly their point of view might be like, okay, I kind of get that, but I need to focus on making people better. And I guess that is a, that is between a rock and a hard place. Definitely. And then, and then the other challenge, how do you get the, the head of technology, the CIO to focus more on the future, whether it's the digital transformation that needs to happen or focusing on uh, creating a great experience. Well, you can't do that if your, if your foundation is 
semi-updated. Um, so I think those are the, some of the challenges that executives are facing uh, when, they're, when they're trying to really get the organization uh, ahead of the curve. They're always mm -hmm. looking back and trying to look at some of the foundational area that's just not up to date. So that's, mm -hmm. that's a big trend I'm seeing in 2020 where uh, hospital executives uh, who are in charge of technology, they're really honing in and focusing on internal or internally within their department, how can they get the infrastructure and the foundation up to par? Uh, rather than focusing on the, the big shiny object that's ahead of them that we all care about. We all know people are uh, focusing on, uh, CIOs are really focused in on just making sure the, the foundation is solid this year. I think that's an interesting point because I think even across industry, even outside of healthcare, like a lot of people are focusing on the next shiny blinky toy that they can implement in, in their organization and they haven't even got their foundation right. Exactly. I mean, you can't, you cannot have, IoT, you cannot adopt IoT technology, 5G, you know, mixed reality, things of that nature. Your foundation is poor. You're always trying to piecemeal it together. So people are starting to really recognize that and they understand in order to really get to the next level, they got to get the house uh, structure in order. I 100% agree with you. So what do you sort of believe as an industry we should be focusing, but we aren't really at the moment? We're not focusing enough. There's a lot of discussion in healthcare on virtual care, mobile first, but we're not really there yet. We just, you know, when I think about the experience of just being able to schedule an appointment through a mobile app or a mobile interface, it's not as intuitive as scheduling in a restaurant reservation, but it should be. It should be something that simple. So the, the convenience side, the experience side for healthcare delivery is not where it needs to be. People know they have to get there, but they just either too inundated with so many different things that they cannot get there. Or another problem that I see in North America is where they're really waiting for the large um, healthcare enterprise vendors like the EMR vendors to to get there, and then the hospitals will follow suit. So, prime example, a lot of, you know, organization has spent hundreds to billions of dollars on their electronic medical record in the U.S. So now a lot of them are waiting for. The enhancements from that BMI vendor to, to have in place before they have any features that's that's focusing on the experience side from a patient perspective. So I would say that's something that we have to really um, improve upon from a healthcare delivery aspect across the world. I mean, I see this across the world. I see this even in Shanghai, where people talk about the cashless society, it's mobile first. Yeah, it is. But when it comes to the healthcare, uh, not everything is the same as retail or financial sector yet. So when you spoke about before in terms of the maturity of the application of trying to book a doctor's appointment online, it's not as advanced as a restaurant. Why do you think that is? My perspective is a lot of these enterprise healthcare vendors, their platform for the software is built on legacy technology. Can you believe that one of the largest uh, electronic medical records that we use in the U.S. is built off COBOL? I mean, that, that is the foundation. Me, no? That's the foundation. So when you talk about that is your foundation and you want to mm -hmm. modernize the look and feel of the, the, the GUI or the interface, or you want to put it in, in, in a public cloud environment, how can you put COBOL in a public cloud environment? How does mm -hmm. that work? So that, that's a foundational aspect to where um, they're always having to, to modernize bits and pieces because there's no way any of these vendors would do a rewrite. They'll probably shut down the entire company. They have to do a rewrite. And these are multi-billion dollar companies. So similar to where we talked about earlier about the foundation for a hospital is not in place. Some of the foundation with mm -hmm. some of these enterprise systems are not in place either, where it's not on the next generation platform. 
So you don't think that people in industry are asking these questions of, oh, we've got a really legacy old system here. We should probably do something about it, irrespective of, yes, it's going to take a lot of time, investment, blah, blah, blah. But it's also about the longevity and the sustainability. You don't think people are asking that? They are. People are asking the same question, but your choices of your selection of these vendors is very limited. You probably have only three to four vendors to choose from that. And how do you ask that question after your, your organization has spent 500 million to a billion dollars on this platform? Who's going to go ask that question now? And that's, that's, that's I, I would, struggle. but of course. <laughs> I'd be bold struggle. enough to. Yeah, yeah, we can ask the question. We can, it's easy for us on the side and say, what are you guys doing? But when you're sitting in that seat where you, you went to the board to say, I need to make a $500 million investment for five years and to get to this you know, digital state, which is great. I mean, the fact that uh, in the US we're pretty much almost all digital, that's a big achievement. But the amount of money that we spend on legacy technology, that's it's really hard to, to, to swallow. And now knowing, and they know that some of these platforms are just antiquated, but those are the choices you have because at the end of the day, most hospital systems and their IT department, they're not development shops, right? They typically work with uh, commercial products. They're more of a system integrator than a software development shop. And that's, you know, while we can ask the question, we don't have the solution internally to, to create our own product. But don't you think eventually like these guys are going to have to move? Because I asked this because when I was working in a bank, like had just finished up the uh, uh, core banking modernization, move, moving from legacy systems to something that is relevant in this day and age and in this century. And so uh, don't you think eventually they have to? Like they can't sit on this forever. Or is that they just can. what they're planning on doing? Well, they, they want to milk it forever, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But you're starting to see, you know, the big tech firms that's trying to come in to disrupt it. Um, Obviously, they're starting to learn as well that, oh, the hospital industry and the healthcare industry is not as simple. You know, we may have the platform, whether you're the Microsoft, the Googles, or the Amazons, but you may not have, have the key understanding, the fundamental understanding of a hospital business to really create the platform. So they are trying to. They're coming in bits and pieces, um, but they're not coming in and entering the market where they're saying, we're going to give you a full enterprise software that's going to be your electronic medical record of the future. They understand that. That's, that's a very hard challenge, but they're trying to tackle it, uh, whether it's starting with virtual care, whether it's starting with a uh, ph- pharmaceutical module, you know, they're trying to tackle it in bits and pieces. So do you think it would take a serious breach, like, I don't know, the largest in the world, for example, for these companies and these vendors to think, oh, we should probably do something about a legacy system now, considering the whole world's being blown up through our systems. Do you think it's going to take something to that level, to that extreme degree for people to go, oh, we should do something about it? Or is it just going to be like, well, we don't really care, there's nothing we can do? Because then I think it sort of goes against the integrity of what these people are doing anyway. Yeah, definitely. So obviously, I could pick up the news every day there's a breach somewhere in North America. Uh, I'm not sure about other parts of the world, whether they disclose it as easily as we do in the US, but there's a breach happening all the time. So at, at, at that point, there's so much that needs to be done from an infrastructure and even enterprise application standpoint. I would say a breach is not going to make them build a new platform, but it, it definitely is going to alarm them. I think they'll start patching things a lot more to say, let's get off COBOL, let's get off Mark's <laughs> database, let's move towards the next generation of cloud platform. That's going to take a, a different type of buyer, whether it's a hospital or health system, and a t- different type of partnership to get that started. Mm-hmm. And do you think, uh, I mean, from a North American perspective, that government bodies are trying to sort of regulate this to be like, hey, guys, like, 
you are literally in the last century of how you're operating. Um, we're now going to start putting regulations, legislation, and level of compliance around this. Is that? Do you think that that'll help? Um, because again, like it just doesn't really solve the problems that we're having in this industry. No, it doesn't. I would say the no, the legislature are trying. I would say even when I first started my career, one thing that we have been striving to come up with as a country in the U.S. is, can we get a unique identifier for a patient? We still do not have that. We're still fighting that battle right now to where legislatures are trying to create standards. They're trying to um, put together ways to get everyone to work together to create a national standard. They're trying to get ways so that closed systems, whether it's the electronic medical records, can be um, can really have interoperability through APIs. We're still having the same discussion that uh, I have heard about since I started my career over oh tw- almost 20 years ago. Oh, so, I, yeah, there are there have been a lot of progress, but is it the progress that we would like to see? Probably not, because mm-hmm. at the same, you know, right now, if I were to go to my local hospitals that I typically go to, there are probably 10 different David Chow records, and it's not even consolidated. And that's that's just within one hospital. So, you know, we have some fundamental problems that we have to fix uh, as a as an industry. But oh no, no, I am being a, a little bit critical, but there have been also on the plus side, a lot of positive enhancements just going from paper to electronic. That mm-hmm. has been a huge advancement over in the last eight to 10 years. That's a, that, that's a pretty monumental feat as well. So walk me through your opinion on IoT and how this will potentially impact the health industry. And I and I ask this because obviously if you take out healthcare and you look at other parts of our society, there are a lot of IoT devices. But the impact to if these devices get breached isn't as significant as if someone's heart monitor is breached and someone dies from it. What's your sort of opinion? And, and you know, as we touched on before, like I was sort of saying, you need to get your architecture of your house right first before you start looking at flashy objects. And admittedly, these things are coming into our industry. But what? where do you think, like, what's just your opinion on the whole matter? Because there's not enough people really outwardly speaking about it. Concerns me because people potentially may die and, and are at risk of being severely injured if things are, are breached or they're not patched. Um, so, yeah, I'm really keen to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, I mean, devices is really, it's a weapon, right? You actually, you know, imagine you have a high profile individual that's in the hospital and someone wants to really attack this high individual uh, profile individual. You're not going to just walk into the hospital and do something. If you have technology now, you could hack into it with IoT device knowing that they're on a heart monitor. So it's actually a, a weapon that can be used for destruction. Um, the, the biggest challenge that I'm seeing right now in the medical device industry is that going back to our earlier example of, okay, a hospital system has their foundation set, but the medical device industry, they're not as regulated. So you still have mm-hmm. a lot of medical devices that are being used as we speak right now, utilizing Windows XP as the operating system. Windows what? 7, that just went out of light, went, went unsupported recently. Mm-hmm. Windows XP is a huge problem in medical devices they have not updated a lot of those devices operating system to the next generation. And that's a, that's a security risk in itself. And that's one area that I would say my peers, the fellow CIOs and the folks who are in charge of security, the CISOs, they're running into that problem all of the time right now. 
And I think I was speaking to another guy that I know who works at Indiana uh, University in the health uh, department there, and he was just sort of saying, to what you point before, medical devices aren't really regulated, but also the, how they're being developed, they're not really even considering security at all. It's like, cool, want it to function. Yes, function's brilliant. And the security on that is probably like 0%. And he was sort of saying that's sort of the risk that we're sort of seeing now because these things are coming into market that healthcare uh, technicians are, are, are purchasing and they're implementing into people's everyday life. But the risk attached to that is, yes, things aren't regulated. And the second thing is that no one's considered security because these people aren't security uh, from a security background. They don't really care. They're from a development background and it's all about functionality at the end of the day. Well, the other the other side is also the folks that are in charge of these medical devices uh, is typically a different department, and that department historically never interacted with IT security or in general. All they wanted was just a IT address where they could plug the device in. So having the mindset of hey, am I plugging in something that is secure is an afterthought. I think now there's a lot more awareness, but historically there has not been. So now organizations have to backtrack; they have to go through their history have to go through all their entire list of inventory if they could even get one and figure out which which devices are at risk, which devices are fully patched, you know, something as simple as patching and which devices have the updated uh, operating systems. I think there's a lot of work that has to be done just to be able to go through their list of inventory and then as, as well as changing the culture because historically those were not the mindset for the engineers that work uh, in, in that specific department. Yeah, of course. And this is even to the point of even they, if they know in terms of asset management what devices they do have, um, which potentially could be missed or overlooked because they, they don't have a record of it. No, no. Um, so do you believe we are ready in terms of securing these devices so they can't harm patients or people who are in need of these types of devices helping them? One, individually, I would say that wouldn't be the approach that I would think about. I would try to think about how can you just secure the organization as best as you can, including, including the devices, really focusing on access, meaning just instead of trying to secure the devices themselves physically, uh, focus on the type of access that's being generated. Um, I think that's a lot easier. Um, but I would, you know, people are trying their best as we speak. There's a lot more sense of urgency now than before, which is a plus, but there's a, just so much history. You know, like we talked about earlier, getting inventory, just getting inventory is a, is a challenge. And that's something people are starting to do now, just understand what's in their environment. So we're really starting from the ground up. The industry does understand the urgency that's required from a security perspective. So what do you think's changed in terms of there's more urgency now, just purely as people have more awareness in terms of mainstream media, publicizing more of these types of uh, breaches or we've just evolved as a maturity from, from an industry perspective? Um, I would say the media, the, the breaches, I think those have definitely created a lot more awareness. But mm-hmm. if I were to ask, is this, um, is every organization as prepared as they need to be? Probably not. Uh, mm-hmm. Until it gets to the point to where uh, security is on the same level as hand washing. I mean, you go to every hospital, the biggest thing they talk about is hand washing. How many times do you wash your hand from a mm-hmm. um, prevention perspective? You know, security has to be embedded and ingrained to that, to that sort of, uh, idea and it has to be educated uh, for the entire organization with the same sense of urgency. I don't think it's there yet, but I definitely think it has to be because it's something that you have to practice on a daily basis. It's not something that you could just do. You know, your once a year security audience says, oh, I'm good. 
I, I have my audit, I have my checklist. But that's what most people do, right? It's not, they don't have a security program. They don't have a full, they don't have anything that they're doing on a regular basis. So it has to get to that rhythm and routine where they're practicing on a daily basis and it has been great in the uh, mentality of every employee. No, I completely agree with you. So David, I thank you so much for sharing your amazing words of wisdom in this space. I personally learned a lot from just talking to you and it's an area, like I said, that I'm personally very interested in. So if people were to reach out to you, how can they go about doing that? Two different ways, two easy ways. One is LinkedIn. They can definitely find me on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn handle is David Chow, D-A-D-I-D-C-H-O-U-C-I-O, or they can find me on Twitter at D-C-H-O-U-1107. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. I've had a blast talking to you, and I hope we can do this again soon. Definitely. Looking forward to it again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.